please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 14th of October 2020. It's time for your morning espresso. Before we get going, I just wanted to say good morning as well to our simultaneous translators, who you can listen to if you select the button below. There you'll have different languages and uh, then you can listen in your mother tongue. You can also click on the Q&A button if you have questions or you can send them to us via email at nodiafunds at nodia.com. Well, this morning we have a very special edition of Morning Espresso in the run-up to the US elections, and I have two fantastic speakers this morning. First of all, I have Jeffrey Sherman, who is the Deputy CIO at DoubleLine, and Jeff is joining us from Los Angeles. Good morning, Jeff. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, Paul. Good morning. Hey. And also I have Stephen Friedman, who is macroeconomist and managing director at Mackay Shields. And uh, this morning, Stephen is joining us from New York. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Hi. Great. Well, the idea of today's discussion is really to focus on uh, the likely outcome in terms of the economy uh, of the uh, upcoming US elections. And of course, the impact that that will likely have on the financial markets. And so I'm gonna straight away go to the first question, which revolves of course around COVID-19, which is probably the biggest story uh, of the year. Um, of course, uh, COVID-19 has, has resulted in, uh, in an economic recession, uh, not just in the US, but all around the globe. Um, and that has profoundly altered uh, the political landscape um, everywhere actually, but particularly in the US and the ability for candidates to run sort of conventional campaigns has, has sort of gone out the window. The likely outcome is that voters will be judging Trump and, and Biden um, on their economic plans to rebuild the, the economy and, and to create jobs. So maybe we could start with that and perhaps look at the, uh, the main differences between the, the two sides. And maybe if, if Jeff, you could, um, you could start with that one. Yeah, I don't think you've seen really a, an announcement of a lot of economic plans outside of uh, everything coded in the word stimulus, right? So <laughs> there's just been a lot of fiscal policies that have been um, uh, talked about uh, but really, this isn't really um, one candidate versus the other. We need cooperation within the two chambers of, of Congress, right? So um, you have the split parties because you have the, the, the Senate's controlled by the Republicans today and then the Democrats control uh, the House. And so I think really the thing you have to think about, if there is going to be some coordination of effort here, either there needs to be agreement, agreement between the two parties, which we did see back in late March, early April, they got the CARES Act done, which was $2.2 trillion worth of fiscal spending. Uh, whether or not it's stimulus or not, it's not stimulus in a traditional sense, 
a lot of it was there to replace lost wages and uh, the necessary shutdown that we imposed on, on folks at that time. So uh, really, if you think about the outcome, it's not just a presidential race, but it, it, you have to look into the Senate as well. And so if you look at kind of the, the forecasting, and we know that it's fraught with error when it comes to political forecasting, especially in elections over the last couple of cycles. Uh, but if you look at that, what you see is that the odds are in Mr. Biden's favor for a victory today. Um, that's through the Electoral College, not just the popular vote, but also that the Democrats would take control of the Senate. Now, uh, it's not very likely they get that super majority, which is at least 60 of the 100 members of, of the Senate. They would need to really be able to really control policy. Uh, but if you saw that, what, what people refer to as a blue wave, that is the Democrats owning all three chambers here, owning the presidency, the Senate, and also the House, uh, then you could see more coordinated effort of pushing through policy. Um, but we do know that if that happens, even though the election is on November 3rd, the transference of power doesn't take, take place until January 20th. So yeah. what we have to see is we'll see a delay in that, that response mechanism. So I think what, what investors are looking at today, if you really get the pulse of the market, it's not a Biden victory or a Trump victory, it's stability. Right, because the uncertainty, as you mentioned, with COVID. So will we have an election? Will it be something where you have definitive results very quickly? And I won't define quickly as being the night of the election because again, the mail-in balloting and everything we're doing in, in this kind of unprecedented nature. However, I do think that that's something that the market's looking at. A landslide victory either direction, I think is what the market is looking for. So, so we just don't have this massive uncertainty and overhang over the markets for the next couple of months. Yeah, I, I would agree with those comments. It would seem that if, if Trump does uh, make a comeback and win the election, it's unlikely that Republicans would control both houses of Congress. So that's a scenario that could see somewhat of a continuation of the current standoff that we have in DC. So if you had that divided government, uh, I would feel less confident that we'll have enough fiscal support for the economy as it tries to recover from the COVID shock. Uh, if Biden wins and there is that, that blue wave, then I think that opens up the door for both near-term support for the economy. Uh, and also, as we know, Biden has some pretty expansionary fiscal plans uh, in mind as well, which could provide a bit of a longer-term boost to the economy. Now, of course, we also know uh, markets tend not to really be big, big fans of uh, corporate tax cuts, uh, excuse me, corporate tax hikes uh, and yeah. also regulation. Yeah. Uh, so both of you have mentioned um, the Senate and the House. And you know a lot of our listeners uh, are here in Europe and maybe it would be good if you could just explain the the interaction between those two bodies um, and then perhaps yeah talk about how realistic is it that, that we're going to get this majority in, in both sure and that's what so Steve, yeah. yeah absolutely um so you know the key thing to, to keep in mind is that legislation basically starts in the house of representatives and then progresses from there to the senate and that's why really there haven't been any major pieces of legislation in the last two years because Democrats control the House and Republicans control the Senate and they have very different priorities. Uh, and that also explains why we haven't really had a follow-up to the CARES Act uh, as, as we were discussing. So um, Biden and Harris have some very significant spending initiatives in mind, but unless they control both chambers of Congress, well, um, those are, are unlikely to come about. So the real key thing to watch, as Jeff mentioned, is can Democrats also emerge with a majority uh, in, this, in the Senate? And the polls, the, the state level polls seem to suggest that there are better than 50-50 odds that uh, Democrats pick up a few seats and maybe emerge with a slight majority, say 51 to 49. Uh, that's pretty small. 
And yes. that means that some of the more ambitious spending proposals uh, of a Biden-Harris administration might have to you know, be put on the back burner a bit. It becomes harder to get those through uh, because when you have such a small majority, it's just really difficult to hold it together, particularly when a lot of Democrats come from more moderate states where their voters might not uh, be in favor of really expans expansive spending programs. And some of those Democratic senators from moderate states, they're actually up for re-election in two years time. So they have to be mindful of, of that election that they'll face in two years. So even with a majority, if it's a slender one, uh, some of the more ambitious plans of Biden and Harris may have to be put on hold. So Steve, you know, or both of you mentioning that, you know, you. It's looking likely that um, that the Democrats will uh, have this so-called blue wave. Um, looks like the blue wave's behind me, but uh, it's the blue wave of the of the Democrats, um, where they would end up in control of both the Senate and the House. So, Jeff, what would that mean in, for investors? I mean, you know, particularly, it looks like the Democrats will be hiking uh, taxes as well. Well, you, you have to think about it from what part of the market are you focused on? So obviously corporate profitability will be impaired a little bit um, just due to the tax hike. Uh, but I think both parties definitely are spenders. Uh, I think uh, to think that the Democrats are the spending party and the Republicans are ultra fiscal conservative, uh, that was blown out of the water during the, ta the Tax Jobs Cut Act, right? The TJCA, yep. when, they, when they did that, uh, where they started with the baseline of a trillion dollar deficit, right? Usually, it used to have to be everything was deficit neutral over 10 years. Now it's, uh, you know, since we're in charge, it's a trillion dollars. And then the Democrats <laughs> would spend as well. So it, it's, it's the focus of where that spending goes. So as a bond investor, let's say, for instance, um, yep. if I'm thinking about interest rates with a lot more spending, uh, that requires a lot more debt because we're not earning that amount of money. So we have to borrow on the debt market. So you, you're likely to see increased debt levels, both in the public and private sectors. The private sector has expanded massively this year uh, due to ultra low interest rates. I don't have to tell European friends out there about ultra low, <laughs> uh, though they're even lower there. Uh, yeah. But you've seen over $1.7 trillion get issued in the corporate bond market and the investment grade side. And if you pull together the high yield and, and loan markets, you know, you're about two and a half trillion dollars of issuance roughly this year or two and a quarter, I should say. So it is a big number. Um, but also remember that, you know, this CARES Act was 2.2 trillion. We were already running a trillion dollar deficit. So my point here is that it's going to be more spending irrespective of the leadership. Uh, the Trump administration has been very, very free flowing with the money. Um, mm. Stimulus is all the talk in the town. And so I don't see anything changing there if, if he were to get reelected. So you put all this together, what it means more debt um, and where it's just where it's focused, where that spending is going. And that's going to be the trillion dollar question of does it create some form of inflation leading to higher interest rates? And, and that's to be seen because we are in a deflationary shock right now. So mm -hmm. ultimately, I think regardless of, of the winner, you're going to see significantly higher burdens of debt. Um, you know what that level is, is depending on the, the dynamics of how this election shakes out. But I think the, the baseline is that we are going to continue to run very large deficits in this country, irrespective of, of, the, of the win of the election. Do, is there a big difference between, you know, Republican and, and Democrats in terms of where that spending goes, the direction of that? Is it going into this like, like infrastructure product? Well, we've heard projects. infrastructure. Yeah. We've heard infrastructure for four years from President Trump, and I haven't seen a bill yet still that comes <laughs> through there. So the infrastructure has been the talk of the town since the 2016 election, and both parties were heavy, heavy participants in the discussion, but we never saw any action on that front. 
uh, it looks like most of the spending was focused on corporate tax cuts. So I, I know Steve and I didn't really get a tax cut because we, we lost our state income tax deduction um, you know, um, during this last process. So although uh, personal income taxes did come down a little bit, it depends on where you live, uh, how, how much that impact was. So I do think that there would be you know, uh, more targeted kind of more public plans under the democratic policies, uh, but it's way too early to tell. And again, as Steve mentioned now, if it's a very narrow victory or a ne very narrow majority in the Senate, uh, that can change the dynamics of how those bills look. But I think a Biden-Harris ticket at this point is not um, these outlandish policies, right? It's not, it's not the, mm. the, the MMT type of strategies and free everything for free everybody. It's coming back a little more centrist. And I think uh, that's probably why you've seen some of the pickup on, that, on the Democratic side is that it's less of the kind of what we call the Bernie bros, you know, the free everything, you know, I don't want to work. I just want free money, free education, free healthcare, free everything versus, okay, there needs to be some semblance of, of uh, policing the policies as well. Yes, I, I would I would definitely agree with Jeff that both of these candidates are spenders. Um, we saw higher deficits under Trump. I think we'd see higher deficits uh, under Biden. Um, I think the outlook can be different based on control of Congress. So when I look at Biden's plans, they are reflationary in the sense that he has these big spending initiatives that aren't offset by tax increases. So deficits would have to go up to finance them. Um, and some of them, I think, are, are, are decent ideas when we think about infrastructure uh, and education, things that can boost trend growth over time. Um, Trump may be uh, uh, a, a, a fan of expansionary fiscal policy, but if he wins and he doesn't have control of Congress, I, I see few prospects for any significant uh, uh, spending legislation over the next two years. And he would probably wind up focusing on things like uh, immigration and trade policy where he has some independence from Congress. Okay, so the, both of you talked about, you know, this is whichever way you go, there's going to be a, a lot of spending. Um, and let's assume that it's a democratic win. This is going to be something that's going to be much easier to pass through uh, both houses. But uh, let's, let's just take the second most likely scenario, which is where, you know, Trump basically is the status quo, uh, where, you know, you have a Republican Senate and you have a Democratic House. Uh, what would that mean for these spending bills? I mean, is that a stone in the road for it? I, I don't think so. I mean, both parties want to spend, right? And so it's all about negotiation. So uh, sorry, Steve, I cut you off there. But I, I just said they both really want to spend. And so we already know what that looks like. That's what we have today. That's what we call status quo, right? So um, I think it just creates more consternation, more divisiveness. And the rhetoric just gets nasty. But again, we'll have to see how that shakes out. Go ahead, Steve. Oh yeah, no, it's it's possible that you get past the election and that some of the bipartisanship fades uh, with the election in the past. Um, but I am I am skeptical that much can get done under the divided government scenario. So let's let's take infrastructure for example. You know, Trump's been wanting to do something on infrastructure for for four years. He probably had an opportunity during his first two years when Republicans controlled both chambers of Congress. But then when Democrats came in, you were left in the situation where the, uh, the different views of the two parties really made it impossible to accomplish anything. So we know that Democrats are more in favor of big public works pro projects where Republicans want to involve the private sector more in infrastructure. And that just created a deadlock. Um, you know, maybe there is this coming together in a crisis. So you get something done on infrastructure. At the end of the day, people are elected to Congress because they can accomplish something. Um, <laughs> But I think that still remains to be seen. It is a very bipartisan uh, environment that we're still in. It's, it's a funny one because both of you are saying, you know, more spending, more stimulus. Um, 
it's, it's kind of the elephant in the room. And I, I don't mean the, Democrat, the, the the Republican Party. I mean, it's not something that's being discussed uh, in, in any of these debates that are ongoing. Um, you know, this this huge debt, uh, government debt and private debt, actually. Um, I went to, there's a, there's a website, uh, the US Debt Clock, Dot org and uh, federal government currently owes uh, 27 trillion dollars. Uh, the country as a whole, including the private sector, owes uh, 82 trillion. And then the government has also these these unf unfunded uh, entitlements to the tune of 210 trillion, and that's you know pension, medical, social security type benefits. Should this mountain of debt concern investors? Is this something that we should be worried about? Maybe Jeff. Jeff, you're on mute. Sorry about That's that. Um, yeah, so ultimately when you look at, look at the debt burden, people wanna focus on interest coverage, right? So since it's a sovereign entity, what we're doing is, is seeing how far the limits can be pushed. And so the US <laughs> has finally exceeded, you know, the 100% of GDP uh, as a public sector debt, as you point out. So um, ultimately, you know, it, it, does, it does put some pressure. It's creating money. At the end of the day, so look at money supply this year. If you look at M2 money growth, it's it's record levels this year, and it was done because of the CARES Act, right? So we were running a deficit, plus you you compound this, and so you know we we had thought at the beginning of the Trump presidency that you know at eight years of a Trump presidency you maybe see a thirty trillion dollar deficit. Well, look, he's on, he's on path for the four years, right? And again, the pandemic is is a piece of that. So I, I think that ultimately the spending is 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 going to continue. There's no doubt about it, but it has to have a pressure valve somewhere. So the pressure valve is either, it, it's, it, it comes at either through inflation or it comes to the currency typically. And so this is what happens when, when you have big money growth. But what you've seen commensurate with that was money velocity. That's why I, I, I'm reticent to use the word stimulus simply because stimulus mm -hmm. is trying to create credit and getting activity out there as well. So mm -hmm. I think it, it's really, it, when you look at it, it's what, what did we do with the money? Well, a lot of this, as I said at the beginning, is transfer payments. That means money from the government to the populace. And so what's happened there is that that doesn't have the same impact because these people were displaced. They were unemployed. They were looking to pay their bills, right? So that that's just a replacement. So that doesn't have this money multiplier effect. So we create a lot of it. Um, but again, all it is is trying to cure the deflationary shock uh, that we were experiencing. And so if you look at the recovery thus far, we're about 60 to 70% through the recovery, right? If you use economic data, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the jobs market is only about halfway, the labor market's only about halfway through its recovery. So these things together will, will say that, you know, it's going to be necessary if we're going to do spending, it needs to be focused on these people who are displaced, right? So create jobs. If, if you, that's where these, these, these programs can be tied together with the crisis. I mean, they, they say, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And that's exactly what needs to happen here is that it needs to be focused on these people, whether it's, it's education, it's training, it's skills, it's job creation. Um, it's the time to do it. And the idea of infrastructure that rolls off our tongue so easy, uh, and we've been talking about it for more than four years, it seems at the obvious place. It's highly capital intensive. It'll, it'll use good quality labor there. And that has a good money multiplier typically on it. So that if you're going to borrow the money and do so, we need things that have high velocity or it has, has a high impulse of credit to, to keep trickling through the economy. So you just want that dollar of borrowing to get you more than a dollar of goods. Historically, mm. it's about half. You know, yeah. when the government does spending, you only get about half a dollar back in services. So yeah. the, the hope here is that we could do something that would focus in that direction. So the debt is a problem. It will be a problem at some point. 
but it's only a problem if the interest coverage and the service of that debt is what causes a big proportion of ultimately the budget. I agree completely with everything that Jeff just said. I'll just add one other dimension to this, uh, and that's the Fed. So Fed QE this year uh, has essentially absorbed all the debt uh, that uh, was necessary or will be necessary to finance not only the CARES Act, but pretty much a similarly sized follow-up act, assuming that QE continues next year, as I assume that it does. So yeah. Yeah, that's something that we need to think about increasingly going forward as well. You're in an environment where you have pretty significant coordination between fiscal and monetary authorities. Uh, and that means that less of that debt burden is being borne by the public. Basically, we're in a, an environment where debt monetization is likely to continue. And as Jeff says, it, it, it remains to be seen um, how that impacts markets, but it could be currency markets in particular that are the eventual release valve. Certainly higher interest rates as well. And to Steve's point there, if you listen to the Fed chairman, what has what Jerome Powell told us? He's been lamenting for three plus months now about we need more fiscal um, coordination here. He's telling you we will buy the bond. So Steve nailed it there. He's telling you we have the balance sheet. We've already given you the path. We're going to spend $120 billion a month buying bonds, right? It's, it's hybrid between um, uh, treasuries and mortgages. They can change that dynamic. He also, if you look at the Fed minutes released last week, they discussed maybe needing to increase those purchases. Then you listen to Mr. Cha the chairman talk, Mr. Powell, what he keeps saying is that it's fiscal, fiscal, fiscal. He's hmm. giving them the authority. You, you print the money, I will buy it. So debt monetization looks very likely. And he, if, you, if you read between the lines, that's exactly what the Fed chairman is telling you. Send, send me more bonds to buy. I've got a bid for them. Send them my way. You figure out how to do it. And that's what we need. So you haven't really seen that coordination as much with Fed, uh, with the Fed side, with fiscal authorities, as I think I'm seeing here over the last few months. That's a really nice segue. Uh, I'm glad uh, Jerome Powell's name came up because uh, we had a, a question come in from, from one of our clients in Italy. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this, Steve, because you used to work in the New York Fed, so uh, it seems appropriate that you get to answer this question. Um, this is um, this is the question from from the client. Uh, the appointment of Jerome Powell to the presidency of the Fed was greeted by the markets by defining him as a dove among hawks, um, and so with some differences to Janet Yellen, the expectation was sort of more continuity. Several times, however, Tr President Trump has been accused of manipulating the Fed, uh, making it much more political than in the past, uh, and with respect to the neutrality with which it's always been characterized. In short, the, present of um, the presence of Trump was very strong. How could Biden's victory change the balance between the Fed and the White House? That's a great question. There's certainly a lot to unpack. And, and I will say that despite all the criticism that came at the Fed from Trump. I think that the Fed did a remarkable job at maintaining its independence. Um, and despite that Jeff and I are talking about increased fiscal and monetary coordination, that's a choice of the Fed. It's not, in my mind, uh, as a result of, of pressure uh, from the Trump administration. Um, so if Biden wins, how does that change the dynamics between uh, the Fed uh, and, and the administration? Um, you know, what, I, what struck me is I think Powell has done a number of things that will help insulate him from political pressure. Uh, first of all, the Fed acted very aggressively uh, in response to the crisis. So that will limit the amount of criticism coming from a new administration and potentially a democratically controlled Congress. In addition, I think the Fed's framework change where they're saying that they are going to not only tolerate but encourage inflation above 2% in exchange for stronger labor market outcomes 
That I think is the right thing to do in this environment. It's also politically savvy because that is the type of strategy that Democrats can get behind where, where right. the Fed is essentially saying, let's not put brakes on this economy. Let's make sure that there are strong labor market outcomes that benefit a wide range of the population. So I think that will help mm -hmm. insulate the Fed uh, from criticism uh, as well. So I do think that with a Biden administration, you will continue to see this strong level of coordination between the, uh, the Fed and the administration. It doesn't mean the Fed won't be exposed to criticism. I think we'll, we will see continued pressure on the Fed to use its balance sheet fairly aggressively. Uh, but I think that the Fed has shown that it, it, it's an independent entity. And even if it's interested in more coordination with fiscal policymakers and it wants to see more stimulus, I don't think that um, those attacks will eventually lead to much in terms of actual change. There's a separate question about uh, whether Powell will be reappointed and maybe we'll come yeah. back to that at first time. Okay. So I guess, you know, all of this discussion, I mean, the, the essence or the most important thing, I, I guess, at the end of the day is, is how investors um, should prepare their portfolios. Um, so I, I'd like to ask that to both of you. Um, you know, what should we be doing now in terms of our fixed income equity exposure, uh, in your opinion? Uh, should we start with Jeff? Yeah. yeah, I think the first thing you should do is not think about the election and not position your portfolio for one direction, because yeah. ultimately we saw how that worked last time. Right. So um, <laughs> you try, you know, we know it's an it's a known exogenous event um, that will have some impact. But ultimately what you need is to balance things out. So you want to own things that, you know, continue the trends, but also kind of prepare yourself for um, you know what could change so as I look forward I think about the challenges in the bond market not stemming from the election but stemming from the amount of yield that you get from them so there are some some pockets of the market that just don't offer a lot of value for the unit of risk today and to me that's owning a lot of interest rate risk so um, un un unlike the European markets I don't believe that the U.S. will go negative interest rates that the Fed chairman has said it many times that they don't plan on doing it Obviously that can change and leadership can change, opinions can change, but hmm. for the time being, they've changed the zero lower bound. They, they started using the word effective lower bound. And he, he is, he, Chairman Powell last year was very adamant about saying we're at the effective lower bound. So uh, I think that that's off the table for now. And if that's off the table and we have more supply of bonds and it's, and it's excess of what the Fed can buy, that could easily put pressure on interest rates just from a supply demand perspective. And secondly, if you get weakness in the dollar, um, two, that could that could discourage some investment in the U.S. as well. So I think there's a lot of scenarios I can paint, and that's irrespective of the election, where interest rates go higher from here. Do they have to go significantly higher? No. Um, but as Steve pointed out, the, the willingness of the Fed to let inflation run a little bit hotter than normal, uh, the bond market's already noticed that. The curve has steepened since that, that, that statement. They, they're paying the front end down, and they're saying, look, we, we're willing to tolerate higher inflation. Now, to which I say, okay, Chairman Powell, that's great. You're willing to tolerate it. Let's talk about getting there first. Achieve your objective, <laughs> then we'll worry about exceeding it, right? Um, yeah. Which they did They did in 2018 was the first time that they'd hit the core PC target for worth of 2% uh, since they really, its inception back in, in early 2012. So ultimately, I think the, the way you need to think about things is what does it look like? If we have more fiscal coming, that should put some pressure on interest rates, but also should be supportive of credit markets. So I, I think right now you, you still want to own some of the credit. We've seen some of the pain in the markets. You want to traffic in things that the Fed is not directly affected, affecting. So I don't want to buy treasuries. I don't want to buy things that they're directly buying. I don't want to buy corporate bonds really either on the investment grade side. So um, I think there is some, there's some opportunities in the leverage finance sector and the bank loan high yield kind of areas. There, there is some opportunity. You got to be careful. 
Uh, yeah. You don't want to just necessarily chase winners. There's some great opportunities that are forthcoming within the mortgage market um, due to yeah. forbearance. We know that some of those impaired credits ultimately will lead to some, some, uh, some nice opportunities in the next year or so. Uh, also in the commercial mortgage market, it's going to continue to be under duress. So with the right skill set and the right teams, uh, there are some very uh, some interesting pockets of opportunity today. And ultimately, investors just need to be cognizant of that. The Fed has distorted some parts of the market. They've stepped into the corporate bond market. And uh, the investors' willingness to chase that as well has really, uh, really diminished a lot of the value we see from that side because it has so much interest rate risk. So what am I saying, Paul? Ignore the election. Think okay. about 2021, irrespective of that, and look yep. through the data. Look at where the opportunities are. And there are ways to position that where uh, you, you can, you'll have the opportunity. And look, if there's another hiccup, there's going to be some great opportunities in the bond market. It's just likely not in the rates market. Okay. I agree with, with, with a lot of what, what Jeff just said. Um, you know, we see the election as something of, of, of great interest. It's going to tell us a lot about fiscal policy in the years ahead. But at the end of the day, when we take a step back, you know, we see that we have an extremely supportive monetary policy stance. At the very least, we don't have to worry about fiscal contraction. And we think that fiscal support for the economy will be uh, sufficient going forward. And as, as for the virus, hopefully by you know, this time next year, we'll all be talking about uh, a vaccine that's widely distributed and very, very effective treatment. So this is an environment in which we see an expansion taking hold. And that's an environment in which you need to be adding risk back into portfolios. And to Jeff's point, we also distinguish between you know, those assets that the Fed is buying or protecting. We kind of think of those as your, your, um, your adopted assets. And the opportunities therefore are probably more in your orphaned assets. So that can be uh, things like high yield, subordinated ABS, emerging market debt. So I think there's a, a good deal of similarity in, in terms of how Jeff and I are thinking about this. Okay, so all of this leads to active management though, not necessarily passive investing, but active investing where you have a specialist who's making those kind of calls for you because this is obviously a, a tricky market to be investing in right now. No, absolutely. And Steve and I both have an ax to grind there. We've got horses in those races, but ultimately through cycles, we do think there's opportunities to do this. And so you just need experience. And um, I know Steve's, Steve's firm is a great firm. They do a great job. I'm very proud of my investment team. We work hard uh, day in, day out, just thinking about these ideas and, and trying to find new opportunities. So um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think that the, the global ag has treated you well, the U.S. ag treated you much better because there's more room to run in rates. But now we have to look on a forward-looking basis and those ag type investments just don't look very appealing um, if rates are to move whatsoever. Hmm. I've got a last question for you. Both. The first six months tend to be sort of critical when, when uh, an election, when, when you have a new president. And I just wondered what would be the first thing that you would do if you were voted in as, as president. So um, uh, let's go with, with either of you, I don't mind actually. Who, who's gonna play president first? I, I would love to play president first. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you say one thing, it's really hard to think of just one thing in this environment. I think the first thing that you have to do is if you get to um, January and you still don't have any sort of fiscal support package in place, you, you just need to do that. Um, I think yeah. Jeff said it really well. The, the, um, the CARES Act did a really nice job overall of replacing lost household income. And I think that's going to need to continue. You know, ideally you'd like to link it a little bit better so that you scale out of that, that support as the economy continues to heal so that the proper incentives remain in place. But you know, big picture, the economy is still gonna need um, a base level of fiscal support uh, through most of next year. 
And then, you know, if, if I could throw in a second priority, I would say within the first six months, I would try to do something on infrastructure. I think if, if Biden is going to make a big mark, it's probably there and it's, it can create jobs as well. We're probably going to have to pair that with tax cuts, excuse me, tax increases to yeah. get through Congress with your slender majority and avoid a filibuster. But that's the second mm. thing I would do. Infrastructure and probably infrastructure with a good, a good lean on, on, um, on the environment and clean energy. Yeah. We keep hearing build back better. I think that's uh, what you're exactly. hinting at as well. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I was going to say I'd probably tender my resignation as soon as I found <laughs> out I won because uh, I would not be equipped to do so, and and I'm a little too uh, a little too vocal at times. So uh, I would I would give Steve the reins because I, I really like what he's saying there. But if I if I I think it's it's definitely things that have money multipliers on them. That's what you want to do. Let's build. Let's not build back better. Let's just build. Right. Let's let's re renovate. Let's renovate our airports. Let's innovate our, uh, our roads. Let's make sure that we have the infrastructure. Let's increase the speed of the rail system. So there's a lot of projects where you can put together 10, 20 year plans. And as Steve said, make them clean. Right. ESG yeah. is all the rave. Um, people really care more about the uh, environment than they ever have. Right. As a society. Mm. And so I think uh, supporting those type of projects, investing there. Um, it doesn't need to go to big oil. Big oil shouldn't get tax cuts, you know, to develop clean energy. Let's do the incentive programs. You know, that's what the SBA does, right? And yeah. so um, it's one of those things. And um, so I, I think that, that would be, you know, a very, very well-focused uh, plan. So I'm going to vote for Steve with my vote uh, for that. <laughs> I, I appreciate your support, Jeff. Yes, thanks. thanks. Maybe you can be Treasury Secretary. <laughs> All right. Excellent. See, I've already pandered for a job. See, we're, we're already getting go. into politics, right? <laughs> So I, I think the more, more important thing, Paul, is not what we do, but what we as Americans do. So for all your U.S. clients, we encourage you all just to make sure your vote, get out there, make sure your voice is heard. And it's very important. All, all elections are important. Uh, but if you don't like the way things are going, you can change it. If you like the way things are going, you can keep it the same. So just make mm -hmm. sure your voice is heard. And it's very important, especially as you know, this, this election is coming under attack. Make sure that you get out and do that. So that's mm -hmm. all I want to say to your U.S. clients. Great. So normally uh, towards the end of the session, we have a sort of summary slide where we go through the key points. But uh, obviously today we're not we're not going to do that. But I am. Um, I did just want to ask you if there's anything else that you just want to mention before we we wrap up today's session. And um, let's go to Steve. Have you, have you got anything you you'd just like to say at the close here? Yeah, I, I guess I might just come back to the election and just make the point that. Um, at the end of the day, it, it's, it, could, it could be an opportunity for trading if we have a delay in the election, for example, um, but stick to the bigger picture issues. Um, it's not about the election at the end of the day. It's about what's monetary policy doing? What's fiscal policy doing? Where are we with the virus? Um, so I think that's really going to be most important in determining what's happening with the economy and, and markets in the years ahead. Mm. Right. I'll, I, I second that. I, I agree. Uh, people focus on these one-off events, but it's a known variable, right? Uh, markets get disrupted by unknown variables, right? Or the things that it wasn't expecting or yeah. expecting the opposite. And I think at this stage, uh, the market has has been celebrating, you know, the, the lead that Biden has built in the polls because it's certainty, right? They are, mm. It's a higher probability. And so it's not the outlandish thing. We saw uh, the last election, if you went to bed and you woke up the next day and you didn't do much, well, guess what? Your portfolio wasn't really affected too much. So the market yeah. will price it real quickly. Um, if there is some some uh, delay in the results, uh, it could create some trading opportunity, but it's not something I think that you should spend so much time on. Get the big picture right, get the asset allocation right, and think about 2021. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the point is, is it could, of course, it could be contested, couldn't it? And, and you're, you were talking earlier about very close margins. Um, either way, that that could be the opportunity, couldn't it? It could be, right? Mm. And that, that's the thing is that that's where the market will really re rebel, probably. But again, you don't know because it could be that it looks contested, but it really won't be contested. So again, there's just too many variables to think about. Don't don't bet directly on the election. Don't don't have a very concentrated bet on it. Just understands one of the risks and, and you're going to get paid for that, right? That's just one of the risks out there. So, Thank you both uh, for some very sage advice there. Um, it's been fantastic. It's always great to, to see you both. So uh, thank you for your time and, and thank you for talking to us today. Next week, uh, I have the lead manager of our Emerging uh, Stars Bond strategy, uh, a guy called Teda Rust, and we will be discussing ESG and also the impact of the US elections on emerging market debt. So don't miss that one. Uh, in the meantime, please don't forget to visit our Stay Alert uh, microsite at nordia.lu, where you'll find all of the past interviews that we've done. We have podcasts there and also uh, Q&As. So that's it for our US election special. Uh, thank you for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.